Uh, we'll be in Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46 this morning. And I don't know what burdens and joys you're coming in here today with, but I just invite you to um, read the word of the Lord with me and ask him to prepare your heart for what Gary has for us this morning. Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. Like Dallas said, uh, I don't know what uh, burdens and joys you are coming in with this morning. Um, I'm losing my mic here again. Give me one second. I feel like every time I'm here, I have mic problems. Give me a second here. doing clearly. It's complicated. There we go. Hopefully there we go. Good. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is, yeah, this is, this is fascinating. There we go. Um, my name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. I like Dallas mentioned. I don't know what joys or burdens you come in with this morning, um, but the passage we're going to look about, I look at, uh, is about Jesus meeting us in the middle of the complexities of life, uh, in the middle of some of the complications, the pains, the losses, the setbacks, uh, rejection, opposition, challenges of different kind, and actually leading us from those places to a kind of joy that isn't contingent on or connected to our circumstances, our possessions, our relationships. It's a kind of joy that's rooted in his presence and in his kingdom. And that kind of joy is unshakable. And, uh, and kind of wherever you're at in life, uh, as you face the complexities of life in your own journey, uh, when you learn to find in Jesus an unshakable joy, a joy that transcends the sort of circumstances we find ourselves in, there's a freedom and a rootedness, kind of anchored life, that brings a sense of satisfaction and joy to every aspect of our uh, existence in this world. And so I'm going to take a moment and pray that the Holy Spirit would meet each of us um, in these moments of our life uh, to lead us to find joy in Jesus' presence and in his kingdom. So would you join me as we pray? Jesus, we, uh, we confess that we need you today. Now we need your presence to guide us, to speak to us, to bring softening to our hearts where our hearts are hard, to bring comfort where we feel weariness and struggle, to bring joy even when we sang. You, you turn graves into gardens. You take bones and you bring life to them. You take us in our sorrow and you lead us to rejoicing. And so I pray that you would help us this morning, uh, that you do that in all of our hearts this morning. And we pray you do it for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to read this first uh, verse from Matthew 13, uh, 44 again, and just the first little parable. I'm going to focus in on, on one phrase here, 
And I want you to see it. Uh, this is Jesus talking about the nature of his kingdom, and here's what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. It's like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and then covered up. And then in his joy, in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I want to think about that phrase, in his joy. Uh, we as human beings are motivated by joy. Philosophers call us kind of teleological beings, which means we're headed somewhere. We're aimed at something. It's the way we live. We are directional people. We're moving towards something, and that something is our own concept of where joy will be found from. Um, I'm going to struggle all morning with this mic. I can feel it now. Uh, give me one more second here so I don't keep going on and on. You clapped for me, and then I was like, no, nope, he's still failing miserably at this mic thing. Really, it's really intimidating that you all are watching me struggle with this. All my deepest insecurities are at play right now. Yeah, thank you. Hero right here. Can we give him a hand? For... Yeah, this thing is... Uh... It's bent or something. Yeah, I think so. Good enough? We're gonna try that. We're gonna try it. Good enough? All right, we're gonna try that. Thank you. Now if it messes up, it's not only my fault. It's our fault. We're gonna to join together. But I'll, it's good. Um, we, we are driven by joy in everything that we do. And so I want you to think for a minute. Uh, in the day-to-day -day fabric of your life, wh where do you go for joy? Uh, not kind of the deepest desires. We're gonna talk about that. But where do you go kind of in the behavioral practices of your life? What do you tend to pursue? Uh, maybe it's something relational. Maybe it's something about friendship. You think about like on a Sunday afternoon, having Sunday afternoon, kind of a slow afternoon with some good friends, maybe watching football, kind of sitting back and relaxing. Maybe it's with family, just a relaxing time. Uh, maybe it's a kind of a hangout time with some friends on an evening. You can get a meal together. You can kind of hang out, go out, get drinks together, whatever it might be. You're kind of thinking about what can I do to hang out with people? Because that's where I find a ton of joy. Or maybe for you, it's something that's more solitary, just kind of quiet, slow down. It's a slow Saturday. It's a glass of wine, reading a book in an evening. It's uh, just some kind of like alone time in the morning. You find a deep sense of peace and a deep sense of joy. Uh, for some people, it's connected to activity. Uh, it might be kind of going out and kind of activities in the sort of recreational opportunities we have in Colorado, right? So many of you, as it starts to cool down a little bit, you're starting to look, to look forward to the first snow when you can hit the slopes thinking about Vail, Blue Sky Basin, fresh, fresh powder, something about that's like, I can't wait for those moments, or it's hiking or camping. Some people, it's connected to your job. It's a big win at work. It's an achievement. It's a big project that you finally finished. It's a meeting that you've kind of been preparing for, and you have to present, and it goes well. It's something you're doing for a client, and you're helping make sense of something for them, and they feel appreciative towards you, or you close a deal in some way. Whatever it is for us as human beings, we're always kind of chasing after these experiences that we think are going to give us a sense of joy. And that's just who we are. There's nothing inherently wrong about that. Uh, it's a part of who we are. Uh, underneath of those sort of behavioral practices are kind of deeper desires within us, sort of foundational desires that we all have. 
Uh, we all have a desire for love and acceptance. And so for some of us, it's just the desire to be loved, to be accepted, to be seen, to be known, to be valued is pushing us towards these activities. For some people, it's a sense of meaning and purpose. They have a sense of I'm contributing to something, I'm participating in something that has meaning and purpose and value. That's what's driving you. Uh, for some people, it's rest, it's comfort, it's pleasure. And so whether that's experiences or substances or activities, uh, whatever it is, it's this desire for a sense of rest and comfort and pleasure. Uh, for some, it's security. You want like the world to feel right. You want your house to feel right. You want your job to feel right, your desk to feel right. You know, you just want things to feel secure and stable. And those are human desires. Nothing inherently wrong with any of those kind of foundational desires. In fact, Blaise Pascal, who was a 17th century mathematician and philosopher from France, said this. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will, or the will of a person, never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. What Blaise Pascal is saying is you are wired to seek happiness. Uh, you are driven to seek joy. It's in your bones. It's in your DNA as a human being. And Jesus never tells you to suppress that desire. He never tells you to push away the desire for joy. He never tells you to push away the desire for happiness. He never tells you to suppress that kind of internal thing that is just wired within you. What he does and what he's actually doing in this passage is redirecting you to the place where it is truly found. In the passage, he says, this kingdom of heaven, which we'll talk about in a, in a second, he says, it's like a treasure that a man found, and when he found it, he covers it up. And then in his joy, for the sake of joy, with this motivation, he leaves all the other things that he had been building his joy upon to buy that field, to pursue this new treasure. In fact, there's a, a theologian named Thomas Chalmers. He wrote an article called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He's saying you don't have the ability as a human being to deny and suppress your sort of internal governor and kind of like a kind of guardian towards joy. You don't have the ability to suppress that. All you can do is find things that can supplant lesser desires, lesser joys. And so when you find something that gives you more joy, you now have the ability to kind of push away the kind of other desires that you've been chasing. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage, is this, this power, this superior power of a new affection. He's saying this kingdom of heaven brings a new affection, a new treasure, a new sense of where value and joy is found that ought to reorient and redirect every aspect of your life. And I think that's a beautiful thing, that the kind of heartbeat of Christianity is a God who created you for joy. And he's come to meet you in this life with all the brokenness, all the pain, all the challenges and the confusion that you may feel at different times, the burdens and the heartbreaks. He came into this world for your joy. Just think about that for a moment. The God of the universe is for your joy. I think that's great news. For me, as I sit in life and I face the burdens and the challenges and the confusion and the doubts and the heartbreaks and the pains of this life, to know that there's a God who is for my deepest joy uh, is a real encouragement. The question we have to ask is, what does that look like? And at the heart of this passage, what we're seeing most simply is that true joy comes from Jesus and his kingdom. It comes from the presence of Jesus and participation in his kingdom. And we'll talk about what that means. 
but it comes from his presence in his kingdom. It doesn't come from the accumulation of material possessions or more and more things. It doesn't come from kind of an accumulation of experiences, the next social kind of thing we can do, the next vacation, the next recreational activity. It doesn't come from kind of uh, family or relationships. It doesn't come from personal health or even kind of like upgrading your lifestyle or your sort of self kind of advancement opportunities. True and deep joy, unshakable joy comes from the presence of Jesus and from his unshakable kingdom. And so I want to talk about for a minute uh, what that looks like in this passage and then what that means for us in this life. In the passage, uh, for the disciples, Jesus has been unpacking these parables. And he's talking to a group of followers primarily. He's speaking to a crowd, but he's speaking to his followers to help them make sense of what it means to follow him in the face of resistance. And what he's most foundationally doing in this passage, he's trying to cultivate resilient disciples. And his followers are going to need resilience. Uh, they're going to need resilience because of the depth of opposition, the significance and the volume of the opposition that they're already beginning to face. And so the followers of Jesus, as they begin to see his power and they begin to believe in who he is and trust that he's the one who's come to meet them in the brokenness of the world and to bring life and to bring joy and to bring restoration with God and salvation to the world, as they begin to believe this, they start following him. We talked about this a few weeks ago. As they begin to follow him, their expectation was, all of Israel, the nation of Israel, is going to be excited about the Messiah. They're all going to be like, our Messiah is here. We can't believe it. Let's, uh, let's start a big kind of group, and we're going to drive out Roman oppression, and we're going to kind of be restored to our former glory. And, and they had this expectation that when we follow Jesus, it's going to mean this kind of participation in this movement that's going to be really exciting. And all my friends and all my family members and all of my coworkers and all of my friends at my synagogue, they're all going to be with me in this journey. And as they begin to follow Jesus, what they begin to discover is their family thinks they're crazy. Their, their former spiritual leaders at these synagogues thought they, that they were being brainwashed and deceived by Jesus. Uh, the kind of coworkers that they were at began to say, if you're going to follow that guy, I don't want you here anymore. Their own families, when they begin to follow Jesus, and it means changes to the family dynamics and some of the value systems that were inherent in the family systems of Israel, their families began to push away from them and ridicule them and talk to them like they were being sellouts or something like that. And they began to experience pain and division over and over and over. And as they face these challenges, Jesus then speaks to them in parables. And when he's speaking to them in parables, he's doing so to help them make sense of the nature of his kingdom. That even in the face of this opposition, in the face of these divisions and this confusion, these doubts and this resistance, in the face of all of these things, that the kingdom of God is still moving forward. And it's moving forward for their joy. And I think that that teaching of Jesus, that the kingdom is moving forward, that the kingdom is an unshakable kingdom, even in the face of this resistance, was deepening within his disciples a sense of resilience. But what he wanted for his disciples was not this sort of like white-knuckled resilience, the sort of begrudging, I guess this is going to be a masochistic movement where we're all going to suffer all the time, but I guess we have to because he told us to, and where else would we go? At the heart, what he wants us to see is that this is there is self-denial. There is a cost to discipleship. There is pain. There are challenges. There are things you have to endure through and persevere through. And you do it for joy. You do it because there's a treasure. You do it because there's something about Jesus and the kingdom that makes your heart light up. Like, where else would I go? You hold the words to life. There's nowhere else I want to go. You are the one. You are the savior. You are the lover of my soul. You're the God who's come to forgive me and wash me and cleanse me. You're the one where acceptance is found and security is found and rest is found and comfort is found and pleasure is found and meaning is found and purpose is found. Nowhere else I want to follow you. And so to communicate that fundamental truth about his kingdom, 
he gives these parables. And he gives two parables that have more or less the same meaning. We'll talk about some of the minor differences between the two. Uh, but at the heart of all of it, he's giving us an understanding of what it means to really pursue his kingdom. So I want you to see this in this first image, uh, how he unfolds it. This is Matthew 13, 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. I want to talk about this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, it's been kind of popping up again and again throughout these parables. And we can kind of have a weird sense uh, of what the kingdom is. Depending on where you've come from, your own spiritual journey, what religious background you have, what church background you have. Uh, I, I feel like I grew up with a, a sense of heaven uh, where it was like, uh, when you die, you go up to some ethereal existence and you wear a white robe and you, you know, get a harp kind of checked out to you and you learn to play the harp, which I think is kind of like this. You know, I think that's kind of how you play a harp. And you have a harp and we all sit there with harps and white robes around Jesus and we sing all the time. And everybody's like, we should be excited about that. I'm like, yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm excited. You know, we're supposed to be excited. It feels like I should be excited. But to me, that didn't feel exciting. I like felt like it was supposed to be exciting, like white robe, harp, singing all the time. And I'm all for singing. Singing today was beautiful. But singing all the time was just like, ah, <laughs> I don't know. You know, like uh, uh, it, was, it was hard for me. But that's the way I thought about the kingdom of heaven. The Bible's concept of the kingdom of heaven is so much bigger. It's not talking about heaven or the heavenly realm as such. It's talking about God's kingdom. And so the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of his beloved son are different phrases. It's talking about the reign of God. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about his reign over the world. And the best place to get your mind around what that means is to go to sort of the prototypical kingdom or the kingdom in its first expression, which is in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2. The whole framework of Genesis 1 and 2 is this creator king that's issuing these kingly decrees, let there be. The let there be phrase at the beginning of all of these days of creation are just common kingly decrees. The king is proclaiming his word saying, let there be light, and there was. Let there be, let there be, let there be. The king makes all these decrees, and everything in creation, he's creating material existence, and he's assigning that existence function. He's giving purpose. So he creates something, and he gives it a purpose. He creates the sun and the moon to rule the night and the day. He creates these different beings to populate the heavens and the earth and the seas and the air and the ground. And he creates humanity at the heartbeat of all of this creation existence to bear his image, to reflect his reign, to exercise his dominion and to cultivate the earth. And over all of this creation, he declares, it's really, really good. It's really good. Like there's a flourishing. There's what the Bible calls shalom, like a wholeness and a peace to this creation. And what we learn from Genesis 1 and 2 is that when everything and everyone submits to the words of the king, it's really good. When everything and everyone listen to, trust in, submit to the words of the king, it's really, really good. And that's the image of creation, is that human beings exist in harmony with their creator. They walk with him. He guides us. He teaches us. He comforts us. He gives us rest. He gives us joy. He gives us hope. He gives us love. And so we're not running into our relationships, clamoring to get love from all these people and trying to kind of behave in a way that's going to get other people to love us and trying to manipulate relationships for the sake of love. We're secure in the love of our creators. Now we're free to give of ourselves to love others, to sacrifice. We're not trying to build security in our possessions and our material worth and hoarding all these possessions to kind of keep ourselves safe. We are secure in the arms of our creator, so we're free to be generous and sacrificial with the things that we have. We're not clamoring to find pleasure and acceptance through sexual activity and through substances and through experience after experience. We're not trying to do that because in his presence is fullness of joy. 
At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now we're free to enjoy the goodness of creation as gifts from the creator, whether he gives them or takes them away, whether we have the opportunity or not, isn't the foundation of our sense of pleasure and joy that's found with him. And his presence is unshakably with us. He's for us. We are created to have harmony with him. And in that space of harmony with our creator, we can then have harmony with one another also. We can actually love each other. We can honor each other. We can care about one another. We can speak the truth to one another. We can show forgiveness and grace and harmony in our relationships. And when we have that kind of harmony in our relational community, there's a sense of joy. We actually get to see other people and appreciate the values and the strengths and the resources they bring to us. And we get to sacrificially use our values, our strengths, our resources to seek the good and the welfare of other people. And then that works itself into our vocation where you can go into your workplace and instead of trying to build your identity through your career or instead of trying to exploit other people for the sake of more income and wealth that's going to secure you or give you the goods that you think you need for joy, you're free to use your vocation sacrificially to seek the welfare of other people, to seek the common good, to seek the flourishing of humanity. This is creation as it was designed to be. This is the kingdom. And it is in your bones. A longing for that kind of kingdom is in your bones. You want it, and you're seeking it. The problem is the Genesis story turns the corner in Genesis 3 where we rebel against the reign of the king. And when we rebel against the reign of the king, the biblical word there is sin. When we sin against God and we turn from the reign of the king, there is now a brokenness. Uh, there's, a, there's a theologian named Cornelius Plantenga Jr. Uh, Cornelius Plantenga Jr. who talks about sin as the vandalization of shalom. And I love that phrase, that when we turn from the reign of the creator, we are ripping apart the flourishing existence that we've been designed for. We are rending shalom. We're breaking shalom. We are vandalizing and terrorizing shalom, both in our relationship with God and with one another and with creation itself. And I think that image so kind of powerfully gets at the core of our existence, where we feel the brokenness of the way the world ought to be. And there is within you a longing for the kingdom a longing for the world as it ought to be. And most foundationally, when Jesus comes on the scene in human history, he comes to restore the kingdom. And so what he's saying to his followers is when you learn about who I am, that I am the word of God put on flesh, I am God among us, I am Emmanuel, I am the king, I am the anointed one, I am the Messiah, the Christ, I am the king, and I've come to bring salvation to the world, which isn't just kind of a ticket to heaven isn't just reconciliation with God. It's a restoration of everything that's been broken by human rebellion. I have come to bring the kingdom. That when you learn that and you see that, it ought to make your heart explode with joy. And whatever you have to leave to follow Jesus, to be in his presence and to follow his way and to participate in his kingdom, it's gone. Not begrudgingly gone, not frustrating, not like, but this was important to me. It's like joy, gone. I'm with Jesus. I'm going with Jesus. I'm going to walk with him. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to learn from him. I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to hope in him. I'm with Jesus. And so to help communicate that, he gives a story, this image that could just get into your brain and work its way into your heart little by little as you chew on it. That's what parables can do. They can just come in the side door of your heart and find their way in there little by little. And he gives a story of a, a man who's on his way. Maybe he's on a journey from, you know, someplace to another place, and he's walking through a field, and he stumbles on a, on a treasure. And you're like, does that happen often? And it's like, well, you have to think about it. When we think about kind of our, our possessions or our wealth, or you think about your money, right? So many of us, you get kind of a, a paycheck, 
It's auto-deposited, and when you need money, you swipe a piece of plastic, or you, you know, use your watch, or you do whatever you need to do, and the money's magically there, like, because we're trusting in banks, and something about the FDIC, I don't know what that means, but it's like FDIC insured, I'm like, it just, as long as that means my money's going to be there when I need it, you know, uh, we feel like our money's secure. Uh, for this kind of civilization, they didn't have that kind of sort of banking system or that financial infrastructure. In fact, they were in a world where they had been possessed and occupied by foreign powers over and over and over. They had been displaced out of their homes multiple times throughout their own story. They had been kind of plundered and their goods had been plundered. So if you had something really valuable, if you had valuable possessions, what you could do to keep them safe is you could put them in a jar or a box and you could bury them in a field. And you know where it is. Other people don't know where it is and you can go find it. Well, if you did that, and then all of a sudden you got displaced, or you had to move, or some Roman kind of centurion, or some kind of army came and displaced you out of your home, or there was a death, your treasure could get left in a field, and nobody knows where it is. And so there are all these stories in the ancient world about people stumbling upon hidden and buried treasures. And so Jesus taps into that common kind of kind of a story and says, a man's going through his way, and, and he bumps upon maybe a box, and he looks at this box, and he's like, what is going on there? And he, he brushes it off, and he finds in the box, like, it's a man, that's a big box, so he digs it up, and he, and he finds what's going on, and he, and he opens up this box, and there's this incomparable treasure. Like, the values of what are here in this treasure just makes his heart light up. This is the greatest kind of value he's ever seen in his life. And so, I grant to you that what he does here, like there are ethical questions over whether or not you should do Like if you're kind of like rent a VRBO one weekend and you're like going through the field and you kind of like notice some like golden shimmer in the ground and you're like, what is this? And you're like, brush it off and you see this huge vein of gold in a rock at this mountain VRBO and you're like, uh, or is it Verbo? The commercials say Verbo, but that messes me up. Airbnb. Uh, and so you're kind of going and you see this rock that has this gold vein in it and your heart's like what on earth and you kind of brush it off and you don't know if this is gold you're like your skepticism about nothing good ever happening in your life is like can't be so you google like what does gold look like you know and uh, and so you're go- and you're like oh my gosh this is like a legit gold deposit in this rock and and so instead of like telling the verbo owner like hey guess what i found on your property instead you're like i have a better idea uh, you cover it back up you go back home, you talk to your family, and you're like, we gotta sell the family business, we gotta sell the house, we gotta sell the things, we gotta kind of change all this stuff because we gotta get enough money to make this like ridiculous offer on this property that they won't even question because we need to buy that property, right? There's something in you that's like, that doesn't feel ethical. I, I, I grant that. The question in this passage is not the kind of ethical nature of what he's doing, it's this sense that when you stumble upon something of incomparable value, you will do anything in your life to chase that. The superior power of a new affection, this kind of expulsive power that when you see this treasure, you will abandon everything you are giving your life to find pleasure and joy in and say, I found the ultimate source. I found something that makes all of these other things look trivial and insignificant. I will leave it all joyfully, not begrudgingly, not like a hard decision, joy to run after this new treasure. And that's what Jesus is saying in this passage, is joyful, kind of moving away from the things we used to chase life out after to find joy in his presence and in his kingdom. And then in the next story, he gives a very kind of similar story about this merchant. And this merchant is kind of a maybe regional uh, tradesman who's going around uh, acquiring pearls. And so in particular, he's looking for valuable pearls. 
And I love this image. The main distinction on this uh, between the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the merchant who's seeking these pearls is that the person who finds the hidden treasure kind of stumbles upon it. And maybe that was your story with Jesus. Like you weren't even seeking, you weren't, so you're just living life and something about the gospel just like met you in your life and it resonated with you and you began to follow Jesus and you've been learning to find joy and hope in him. Uh, other people, you feel like you are just like hungry for joy and you are chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing. And that's what's happening with this merchant. It's chasing pearl after pearl after pearl. The, the kind of comparison is who's buying pearl after pearl after pearl. He's in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Saying so going pearl after pearl, kind of like maybe this one will be the right one, maybe this one will be the right one, and just kind of constantly seeking and searching for places to find joy and meaning and satisfaction and worth. And then one day finds one single pearl that makes all of those other pearls look like nothing. Nothing. Sells all of it. Everything that he had spent his whole life chasing and building and accumulating and running after, he just felt like, it's all gone. I found the treasure. I found the pearl of great value, and I'm giving my life for it. And that concept of running away and joyfully turning from it and kind of leaving behind anything that holds us back from the kingdom to follow Jesus met those disciples at a really important moment in their life. And I think it meets us at an important moment in our lives right now. We, we live in a world that has kind of taught us where to find joy, where to find meaning, where to find satisfaction. And many of us are still running the rat race. You are on a treadmill that you think, like, it will be enough. And you're just moving and moving and moving. And early in life, if you're kind of in the younger demographic of the church, you still have this sense that, like, all the kind of advertisements that are telling you this is where joy is found, they're all true, right? So you get the right clothes. You get the right friends. You get the right vacations. You get the right experiences. You get the right family. You get the right job. And then you'll get it, you know? And then everybody in midlife is like, it doesn't work, I promise. Uh, because you hit what we call a midlife crisis. It's like, so, it's so common. There's like a, a cliche name for it, which is that race doesn't satisfy you. Just get into the right dating relationship with the right person or now do, okay, needs to get married. And then the next thing is kids. And the next thing is, you know, next stage of life, next stage of life, next stage. Of, if I could just get empty nested and kind of like, you know, and it's always the next thing or it's your career. If I can just get that career that I makes all of my kind of like heart bells whistle, you know, like that just kind of aligns with all of my desires and it's perfect and that the employer is this perfect employer that values me and, and the kind of opportunity and my job works in all of these exactly perfect ways, then it'll be enough. And you chase it and you learn, man, there's challenges. There's difficulty. Well, then we kind of move away from that and we try a, a different job or a different career or a different industry, always running. And it's the next experience. It's the next vacation. It's the next home. It's the next point of your lifestyle. It's the next night out. It's the next sexual exploit. It's the next whatever it is. It's the next something. And then when you feel like finally none of it's doing it, then you start numbing that, that chasm between what you want in life, the joy you long for, and the experience. You just start numbing it with distraction. You get disillusioned. You start just kind of watching TV over and over and over again, using different things to sort of numb and escape the pain. Some of them are relatively kind of benign things. Some of them really toxic and destructive things. And this is human existence. We're chasing pearls. We're running and we're running and we're running. And it's never enough. It's never enough. Uh, there are, I want to share two stories with you uh, from two different kind of industries, two famous people. The first one 
is uh, Jim Carrey, uh, who I grew up in the sort of like, you know, Jim Carrey era where like, thought he was hilarious as a person. And it's been fascinating to watch uh, just his story. And, uh, and, and there was a moment in I think 2000, maybe five or six, uh, that he was, he was presenting a Golden Globe Award. And uh, announcer kind of over the PA announces, you know, to kind of present the next award, two-time Golden Globe winning actor, Jim Carrey. And, uh, and Jim Carrey comes on stage, and here's what he says. He says, thank you. I am two-time Golden, Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. Now, I want you to imagine again the audience. Golden Globes, TV movie stars, actors, act- actresses, they've given their life to this. They've now been nominated for a Golden Globe, which is a big achievement. And now they're waiting to find out, did I win? You know, like, did I finally get this Golden Globe, which is a huge achievement in that profession, in that industry. And so he says, you know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. And everybody's laughing like, oh, that's funny. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. You just feel all the air just get sucked out of the room. Just like, just imagine it. Like this person is like, the thing that you want most in life, I've received two, and it didn't do it for me. I'm not satisfied. I don't feel fulfilled. I didn't find what I've been searching for. And then he says, but these are important, these awards. And everybody's kind of uncomfortably laughing uh, because he's just like saying, hey, this isn't going to do it for you. It's not going to do it for you. Uh, another one, this is our arch nemesis, Tom Brady, uh, who <laughs> played football, still in the league, won a couple, you know, things here and there. Uh, <laughs> this is 2005 after he had won a mere three uh, Super Bowls. Um, here's what he says in a 60-minute uh, interview with Steve Croft. Uh, he was talking to him, and, and Steve Croft, Croft is a- asking him about his experience. And he said, you know, there are times when I'm not the person that I want to be. Like, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. Like, I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But for me, I think, God. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? And Steve Croft, the 60-minute interviewer, says, well, what's the answer? And Tom Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And Jesus comes into that felt experience and says, I'm the answer. I am. I am what your heart was made to find joy in. I am the pearl of great value. I am the treasure of surpassing worth. I am the one who brings a a sense of joy, acceptance, love, fulfillment, purpose, meaning, rest, comfort, pleasure. Everything I designed your heart to long for, it is found in my presence and in my kingdom. And there's no other way. There's no other way. And so you can stay on the treadmill. You can keep running the rat race. And at some point, it's just like, let's wake up. Let's just be honest. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Everything in our modern society, everything about the economic engine of Western civilization is kind of contingent upon you continuing to buy that lie, continuing to be bought into the sense that if I just did a little more, if I just got a little more, if I just went a little farther, it's the next stage, and it will not work. It will not work. There's a philosopher named Charles Taylor who talks about 
in the secular age in which we live, this attempt to find meaning and purpose and joy in what he calls the imminent frame. And the imminent frame is sort of, imminent just means like this near, and it's talking about in the existence of our lives that is both kind of material, touchable, kind of feelable, and temporal, immediate, like achievable. And so we, we construct all of our kind of sense of joy and meaning and things that we can acquire, we can accumulate, we can do, we can see with our eyes, we can build around ourselves, and we can experience right here, right now. And so in Charles Taylor's kind of assessment, we live in a society where people aren't saying that there is nothing transcendent, kind of beyond the material. He's not saying that we say that there's nothing eternal. It's just if there is a transcendent, if there is an eternal, it's irrelevant in my quest for joy. So maybe there's a God. Uh, maybe he's out there. Maybe there's something after death. But in my day-to-day search for joy, it's irrelevant. And I think even within Christianity, we, we want God to be present, but more or less, we're still bought into trying to find joy and meaning in the eminent frame. And so it's kind of an image that I've had to help me make sense of this in my own story is this attempt to like build our life within like, imagine a cardboard box, a big cardboard box, and your whole existence is in this cardboard box. And so you, you've got it, and your kind of goal is to construct a meaningful life within the cardboard box. And the cardboard box is the eminent frame. It's the kind of material, touchable, temporal things of life. And so inside the cardboard box, you have your family or your relationships, your friendships. Uh, you've got your kind of recreational activities. You have your career. You have your possessions. You have your net worth. And, uh, and what we're doing in the box is we're just trying to arrange it all just so. We're, we're trying to get it all exactly the way we, we think it's supposed to be. And so you, you kind of get to that stage of family that you want, or you get, you get your career that you finally dreamed, and you're trying to kind of establish net worth or possessions or whatever makes your kind of like your life tick, and you're like situating it all, and, and you feel like, man, this is kind of like not as stable as I want it to be, and I'm not finding the joy I long for, so you kind of rearrange that, and this career isn't turning out, and so we kind of like, uh, let's move that career, and let's go over here for a career, and, and you're just constantly rearranging and trying to build this life inside the eminent frame as if, if you just got it right, if you just got it all right, then yes, yes, and what you're longing for deep down is the kingdom of God. What you're longing for deep down is the presence of a transcendent God and a kingdom that is unshakable, that is transtemporal, that kind of exists in a world that is without time, that is without brokenness. And you are longing for these things. And it is precisely in the brokenness. It's in the cracks in the box. It's when that, it's when that part of the box rips and there's like light that shines through it from the other side, like grace and love. And from when the relationship falls apart, there's a pain and God meets you in that pain. When the family is struggling and you're feeling challenges in your marriage, you're feeling overwhelmed with your kids, or you're feeling regrets as a parent, you're now an empty nester and you have regrets with your kids and you feel that pain, and all of a sudden, like, the love of God is meeting you in that space. It's like, we got to take those cracks in the box and just pry them open. That's where joy is found. It's not found in the things we can do in the box. Sometimes there are tastes of it, echoes of it. But at the end of the day, the joy is found in the presence of God. This is C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity chapter on hope said this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. If, if everybody is running the rat race, and when you listen to people that are later in life or that have experienced pain and loss, and they're being honest about the challenges and the difficulties and the pain they've experienced, if you're listening, like these things that we long for, cannot be achieved and the things we can accumulate and accomplish. They just can't. And when you can get honest about that reality, when you can kind of like 
break yourself out of the fog of disillusionment and the sort of deceptive environment that the enemy creates to keep us away from God. And you kind of break yourself free of that. And you begin to believe what Jesus said about the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like this one pearl of great value. And something in you says, yes. The spirit of God is like creating within you this sense of yes to Jesus. And you start breaking yourself free. It's not necessarily all of a sudden one day, all those things feel meaningless and Jesus feels most precious in every way. There's a journey of seeing him increasingly as the God who meets you in these spaces, him increasingly purging and purifying and pruning and bringing you to a place of surrender where you can begin to let go of the things that are holding you back, to start giving yourself more kind of fully surrendered to the presence of Jesus and the reign of Jesus. And as you do that, there is a freedom. There is a freedom. There is an experience of love that isn't contingent on all the people around you. There's a place of security that isn't connected to your circumstances. There's an ability to find peace and rest even when the waters are toiling around you. There's a place of grace and forgiveness that allows you to be honest with your humanity. There's a place of joy in the midst of even the most painful moments that cannot be shaken. And there's a journey towards that. And the question we have to ask is how do we begin to see that? How do we begin to cultivate that? How do we chase that as a people? Because that's what Jesus wants for us is to be people that can increasingly surrender to him. We can surrender our hopes, our dreams, our ambitions. It doesn't mean you don't have them, but you're surrendered. And you're now chasing him more fully, more passionately, with a more single-minded devotion. And so a question I want to ask us today is what does that look like? What does that look like? And the first question that I think we have to ask is, do you want it? Do you want it? Like, is there anything in you that says, yes, I want to run hard after Jesus. Like, I, all this world and everything it has to offer, I believe that it's not going to fulfill me. I believe that Jesus says, I, I want it. Do you want it? Because I think sometimes we don't. Another C.S. Lewis quote, he's my, by far my favorite author, um, and this is from Mere Christianity, or this is from The Weight of Glory, uh, really the first couple pages. The Weight of Glory, if you've never read it, really short. You read it in probably 30 minutes to an hour. Uh, but so powerful, so powerful. And here's what he says. Lewis says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. He's saying we're like little kids who all we know is the life that we're building. All we know is what everybody else around us is doing. And we're making mud pies and we're, there's a brokenness and a pain around us. We found some way to have some sense of fun and there's oppression and poverty and brokenness all around us. And we're trying so hard to make these mud pies and be like, this is great. And then somebody intervenes in your life and says, hey, I'd like, I'd like to take you to a vacation on the beach. I'd like to take you to the south beaches of Florida. I'd like to take you to Orange County. I'd love to take you to southern Florida, South Florida and South Beaches of Florida. I'd love to take you to Cancun. I'd love to take you there. I, I want to show you something that will blow your mind. And I want to bring you there. And you're like, no, I'm good. I'm good. And you're like, but like, don't you understand? No, I'm good. It's like, this is enough for me. 
I'm good. It's like we can't even imagine. But if you begin to say like something about the way I'm trying to find joy and satisfaction, it's not, it's not what I'm longing for. There's a brokenness to this pursuit and I'm acknowledging it. Will you decide, will you turn to follow Jesus? I love that old hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, this kind of sense of like wholesale abandon and surrender to God. And so there first is a decision. Do you want to follow him? Do you want to today? Do you want to today? Say, I'm done chasing this stuff. I'm done with the rat race. I'm hopping off the treadmill. The cultural system that's leading people to despair and disillusionment and depression and anxiety at unprecedented levels is a broken system and I'm done with it. And I'm going to follow Jesus. If that's the case, then you have to ask another question. What would you need to reorient in your life to prioritize the kingdom? Because your whole life is set up around the value systems of the world. It just is. It's inherent. It's kind of the water you swim in. It's the air you breathe. And so what would you need to reorient to say, if I'm going to seek Jesus and seek his presence and his kingdom and his purposes, what would that look like? And it would look at making the presence of God the sort of foundational orienting principle of your life. How do you begin to reorient your life to give attention to the presence of God? to listen to his voice, to spend time in his word, to listen to his instruction over you, to kind of begin to actually reorient your life around his values, around his nature, that instead of kind of seeking joy and satisfaction and getting the perfect family, you actually say, man, I find joy and satisfaction in God so I can sacrificially give myself to my family. I can give myself to my spouse. I can give myself to my kids. I don't have to try to make my kids something that's gonna give me a sense of identity and value. I can sacrificially and humbly serve them. I can own my own faults and ask for forgiveness. I can sacrificially serve my spouse in our life because I'm not trying to get something from them. I'm now ready to give myself to them. I can go to my work tomorrow morning. When I think about God's love for me and the gifts he's given me and the gifts he's given other people, I can show up and I don't have to try to climb a ladder. I don't have to establish my sense of identity and worth before the eyes of my coworkers by proving something. I can show up with humility, with love, and take the gifts God's given me and seek the common good of others. I can seek to contribute and serve our clients and serve my coworkers and love them and honor the people around me. I can show up in my neighborhood and instead of just hoping that our neighborhood kind of becomes all the things I want it to be, I can show up and pay attention to the brokenness and the love and the beauty and the grace around me and appreciate the beauty and serve people in those places and just participate in my neighborhood in fresh ways. Like when you're prioritizing the presence of Jesus, you're free to now be human, to be what humans were made to be, to live in this kingdom and participate in the kingdom movement the way you're designed to. It's right there for you. And the third question I would ask is not just, do you want it? What would you need to reorient in your life? But the third is, what would you need to leave behind? What would you need to surrender? I think for many of us, there are things that we have a hard time letting go of. Maybe there's a relationship that you know, this relationship is not healthy for me, but it's what I've always wanted and I'm finally in it and I've been wondering if I'm ever gonna be in a kind of relationship and I finally have this and it's not helping me grow my love for Jesus. It's not pointing me deeper to Jesus, but it's hard to let go of. It's hard to let go of. What would it mean to say, I don't think a relationship is going to give me the life I long for. That's Jesus and so I'm gonna open up my hands. Maybe it's career ambitions and what you're just like chasing, you're like, you've bought into the kind of culture at your workplace, which everybody's chasing, everybody's running, everybody's doing more, more, faster, better, and just to keep up with your coworkers, it's requiring a kind of energy and a giving, kind of like 
something that's like taking so much out of you that it's just depleted who you are as a human being. You have no energy to be human. You have no energy to be present with your family. You have no ability to rest because you've bought into, I have to follow that way of life. And to say no to that means, or to tell my employer, you know what, I think I'm actually at my limit right now. I don't know if I'm ready for that promotion. I don't know that I have the energy or the time to do that. It feels like, why would you do that? That's like the opposite of what you're supposed to do. It's possible. Do you know it's possible your employer would be like, wow, that's like powerful. Let's rethink of things and think about it a little different. It's also possible you'll get passed up. You have to leave behind an opportunity. Would you surrender it for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom and his purposes? What is it for you? Martin Luther famously said uh, in the hymn, he said, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And so the question we have to ask is what would it look like to follow Jesus towards his kingdom? Jesus gave up everything. And he did it, Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him. He emptied himself. He emptied himself and came to this world and he put on this human flesh and he dwelt among us and he served us to the point of death, even death on a cross. He gave everything. And he did it for joy. For the joy of being present with the Father and obedient to the Father, but also for our joy, the joy of establishing the kingdom that abides forever. And so I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see the nature of that kingdom, and that we'd run hard after Jesus together. Um, Jesus, we, right now, we need you. Um, all around this room, there are things in each of our lives, in all of our hearts, uh, that are holding us back from the joy that you alone can give. And so we need you. We need your grace. We need conviction from your Holy Spirit. We need strength. We need eyes to see. We need ears to hear and hearts that would respond. Where there are hearts that are right now gripping really tightly to things. Would your spirit help loosen that grip? Where there are things that we have hung on to so firmly for so long. Things that we know aren't helping us pursue you, follow you, live inside your value system, the values of your kingdom, uh, would you even right now help us to see that just the deceptive nature that these things will never give the life that we long for. They will never give us what they've promised. They will disappoint again and again and again. You are the one who gives the joy we long for. Would you help us open our hands? And would you help us reorient our lives as a people, that as a church, we would be a place where we continue to run to you. We continue to look to you. We continue to turn to you. We continue to help one another to follow you. And not just in these kind of like singular moments, but in the day-to-day -day kind of moments of life, that we'd be a people that are constantly having a heart of surrender, saying all to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence. Daily live. Help us to live in your presence daily and surrender the things that hold us back. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I want to give you just a moment uh, to consider what the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you. I think for each of us, and I, I mean this, for every one of us, there are things that need to be reoriented. There are things that need to be surrendered. And the question is, 
Will we continue to play around with the mud pies or will we hear the invitation of Jesus, come to me, come to me, follow me, walk with me, trust in me, hope in me, wait on me, rest with me, follow me. And so what I encourage you to do right now is take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit, God, are there any things that you would want me to reorient? Are there any ways that I need to change the way I spend my afternoon, the way I spend my evening, the way I spend my morning, the way I think about my job? Are there any things I need to surrender? And maybe something's gonna pop into your mind right away. Just slow down and pray that God will give you the strength to surrender those things, not for the sake of this begrudging frustration, but for the sake of joy. So pray that the Holy Spirit would lead you in these moments. we uh, confess right now we need you. I just, uh, have a sense too that there are people here today um, who like me uh, have a hard time letting go. Have a hard time opening up their hands with surrender. And so if there are specific things that uh, people are, are wrestling to open up their hands, Holy Spirit, would you help? I would encourage you, if, if you're here and you're feeling, man, just the Holy Spirit is lighting up a very particular area of your life, uh, to not move quickly past that. But today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart against the Spirit of God. Ask him for help. Lean into the, the challenge. Lean into the difficulty of opening up your hands and saying, Jesus, I want to give this to you, and I want to do it for joy. But if I'm honest, it doesn't feel like joy right now. It doesn't feel like joy right now. It feels painful. It feels hard. And Holy Spirit, would you meet them in, in that challenge and give them greater eyes to see the, the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the joy that you give, and that that joy would free us to let go, not with begrudging hearts, but with joyful hearts, and that we'd surrender to you. And we'd do it for joy. And would you help us to be a community where we help each other in the journey and the slow process of growth and in the challenges and the setbacks and the regrets and the failures? Would, would we be a place where we can help each other? Keep running hard after you because you're worth it. So help us, Holy Spirit, in Christ's name, amen.